It's Wednesday, March 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The surge of immigrants at the border continues and is expected to possibly last seven months, as projections for September by Customs and Border Protection is anywhere from 22,000 to 25,000 migrants crossing the border. The administration is trying to get control over the situation, but the message is not reaching migrants and smugglers. Reuters spoke to over a dozen self-identified smugglers to see how and why unaccompanied minors are crossing the border. In many cases, these smuggling operations can cost thousands for migrants, as they are transported by a variety of ways, even by plane. Laura Gottesdiener, Reuters correspondent based in Mexico, joins us for more. Next, a recent study is shedding light on the neurological difficulties some are having months after a COVID infection. The issues were even present in many that did not have severe cases of coronavirus. The most common issues were brain fog, headaches, tingling, and muscle pain. As is with many COVID problems, scientists think it's related to the inflammation caused in the body when trying to fight off the virus. Pam Bellick, health and science reporter at the New York Times, joins us for these neurological COVID issues that linger. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The idea that I'm going to say, which I would never do, that if an unaccompanied child ends up at the border, we're just going to let him starve to death and stay on the other side. No previous administration did that either, except Trump. I'm not going to do it. Joining us now is Laura Gottesdiener, Reuters correspondent based in Mexico. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. We've been seeing this crisis at the southern border with migrants coming from Central America and Mexico over to the United States. Really, the big concern right now is the unaccompanied minors that are coming over. We're seeing huge, huge numbers coming along, and uh, we're expected for these numbers to increase, really. April and May are usually uh, warmer months, obviously. This generally tends to be the time that a lot of people come over But, you know, a lot of people are also pointing fingers at the Biden administration, saying the policy changes, saying you're not going to turn away unaccompanied children at the border is inviting them. And, you know, the messaging that comes from the Biden administration's not always what these migrants are hearing and what the smugglers are hearing there. There at Reuters, you guys spoke to over a dozen of the self-identified smugglers in Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, to see how the children are coming over, why they're coming over. So, Laura, tell us a little bit about what you're finding. First, important, you know, to put some of the migration that we're seeing in context. I mean, for a number of years now, we've been seeing an increasing number of families and children coming from Central America. This is something that we saw under the Obama administration, under the Trump administration, and now under the Biden administration. As you mentioned as well, migration trends tend to be seasonal. So migration tends to pick up in January and February and then go through until you start to get the warmer summer months and then it becomes more dangerous. So, you know, it is definitely the case that there are more migrants, particularly families and unaccompanied children traveling to the U.S. border than we've seen in previous months. At the same time, you know, we saw a huge increase in the number of families and unaccompanied minors as well coming in 2019. So this is something that really spans a number of different U.S. administrations from both parties. We wanted to speak, as as you mentioned, to smugglers to understand the trends of how these children are getting to the U.S. border, because it's certainly striking, of course, as you hear stories 
of unaccompanied children, children without their parents or their legal guardians, including you know, some very young children arriving to the border. So we wanted to understand, you know, how are they traveling? Who are they traveling with? How much does it cost for them to be traveling? And where are their parents? Because I think there's often this sense that the parents are all in Central America, when in fact, sometimes the parents are, are already in the United States. And this bringing of unaccompanied minors for them is a reunion for the family. Let's talk cost real quick, because it seems like these smugglers are, are dictating that policy. You know, I said how the Biden administration is trying to make clear, hey, don't come over right now. But at the same time, we're not turning over kids. That's the message that's getting across that the smugglers are telling parents out there. Now's the perfect time to send your kids alone because they won't get turned away. So how much do these trips cost and how are they paid for? Yeah, those are really good questions. It's a very good point. The Biden administration said, as you mentioned in early February, that it would go back to the longstanding U.S. policy of not expelling into Mexico or rapidly deporting unaccompanied minors, which is a shift, obviously, from the Trump administration, although it's in line with the longstanding U.S. immigration policies. But certainly, as you mentioned, that message was heard loud and clear uh, in the smuggling community and broadcast all across the region by smugglers to migrants. And a number of the smugglers that we spoke to explained that they are telling parents that their children will have an easier time getting into the United States if they travel alone. Uh, And that's something that migrants are hearing from smugglers and migrants are also seeing on the ground. We spoke with a woman who traveled with her teenage son to the border, uh, to the U.S.-Mexico border, crossed in a group of about 40 people. And then she watched as, in line with the administration's policies, the border agents separated the parents and families and single adults from the unaccompanied minors. And the unaccompanied minors got to stay and the rest were expelled back into Mexico. And so when she saw that, she paid a smuggler to ferry her son across the river on his own. When we're talking about costs, they vary dramatically. We can be talking about a few thousand dollars. We can be talking about $10,000. It depends on how much of the journey is being paid for. If you're paying a smuggler to take an unaccompanied minor directly from Central America, transport them all the way across Mexico, and then cross the border and deliver is what the terminology that at least the smugglers use, but essentially turn them over to U.S. immigration agents. You know, we can be talking about $8,000, $9,000, even $10,000. If unaccompanied children are paying only to be ferried across the Rio Grande River, you know, into Texas, then we're talking about maybe, you know, $1,000, a few thousand dollars. So it really depends. It depends on the age of the child, depends on the nationality of the child, and it depends also on the on the method of transportation. We spoke to people who are ferrying these children by bus, by boat, by car, and by plane. And obviously by plane, we're talking about very expensive journeys. And you mentioned in the article, too, with these smugglers that a lot of it sometimes is kind of like a family business. One of the smugglers you spoke to who deals with young children, sometimes he'll take them to his personal home. His wife and his daughter help take care of the kids until it's time to transfer them over to border protection. So it's really a whole business they have set up. I'm glad you brought in that story. I was really surprised in many ways to hear the story of the smuggler who who goes by the nickname Vasquez. He said he specializes in unaccompanied minors, you know, and, and unlike others I spoke to, you know, other smugglers really said, you know what, we really actually try to steer clear because there are many risks associated with 
smuggling across international borders children without their parents or legal guardians. As one can imagine, these are very dangerous migration routes. There are a number of different physical risks, obviously psychological risks. Many of these migrants are being transported through the Mexican state of Tamaulipas, where there was a dramatic massacre of mostly Guatemalan migrants earlier this year. So these are dangerous trips for anybody to be taking, but particularly for children to be taking. But as you mentioned, Vasquez does specialize in unaccompanied children. He told a story of going down to the uh, Mexican border with Guatemala to pick up a group of five to nine-year-olds, and he transported them across Mexico by bus. And then, as one might imagine, it is not easy to care for a number of children who weren't being accompanied by any family members in this case. So he brought them home to his family's house. His teenage daughter and his mother helped him take care of them. And then, you know, when it was time, and that's something I'd like to get into as well, when it was time, he ferried them across the river into Texas. And when I say when it was time, because smugglers are not the same as cartels, but they have to coordinate with drug cartels who control swaths of territory in Mexico. They have to pay for every single person that they smuggle across the cartel's territory. And particularly in Tamaulipas, there's a number of different cartels that control different territories. Smugglers have to be extremely um, careful to pay off who needs to be paid off. And in this case, he explained that the cartel that controls the territory where he crosses children requires the smugglers to send the children around the same time in coordination with when the cartels are sending shipments uh, of their cargo, which is drugs. Um, So that's also a strategy that, at least in this case, he explained the kids are in some ways being used as a decoy to distract U.S. agents from drug shipments across the border. The president has put Vice President Kamala Harris in charge of trying to deal with this. But, you know, just as your reporting kind of shows, this is big business already. These are family businesses, so to speak. And the people that are smuggling their kids across, or trying to at least, are going back to these people who have maybe helped them in the past before. So this is a machine that is already working, and this is going to be hard to dismantle or disrupt. So this is kind of uh, the difficulties in, in handling a lot of it. I think those are very, very good points. Certainly the international smuggling, human smuggling industry in this region of the world is an incredibly well-developed, complicated, agile, obviously illegal industry that reaps in incredible amounts of profit and has incredible reach. Certainly if you're transporting any migrants, but including children by commercial planes uh, successfully, you have to imagine that there is infiltration with states, with the governments involved. So these are serious questions that any U.S. administration currently, obviously the Biden administration, has to tackle. There's serious questions about what the deterrence models that have been long used around migration, what impact they have in terms of perpetuating these types of illegal industries. And I think the Biden administration, he obviously has long experience in this region of the world, has really put a strong emphasis on addressing the root causes in Central America that is spurring a good deal of this migration. And so a lot remains to be seen about what the Biden administration and Vice President Kamala Harris will do in order to work to improve the living conditions in Central America. These are very tricky international and diplomatic questions. But certainly, you know, as we can see um, and as we'll likely continue to see, 
if Central America continues to be a place that many migrants describe as unlivable, then we'll continue to see migration. Laura Gottesdiener, Reuters correspondent based in Mexico, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. These are not people who were hospitalized. They basically had very mild illness. And yet what they find is months later, 85% of them were experiencing four or more symptoms, things like brain fog, headaches, tingling, muscle pain, dizziness, disturbed sense of smell and taste, all that kind of thing. Joining us now is Pam Bellick, health and science writer at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Pam. I'm happy to be here. Wanted to talk about this new study that we have, talking about some of the neurological issues that people have gotten months after the coronavirus infections. You know, we've been hearing a lot about people with long COVID. It's sometimes been called long haulers, just people that are feeling the effects of the virus far beyond after they've recovered from it even. But uh, we're, you know, seeing things like brain fog. You're hearing a lot about dizziness, just kind of that fatigue that sticks around with a lot of people. And we have these neurological disorders that people are, are experiencing constantly. So Pam, tell us a little bit about what this new study and, and who conducted it and what we're learning. So this study was done by a special clinic at Northwestern University Hospital in Chicago that was set up to specifically deal with neurological issues from COVID patients. And, you know, it's run by people who are neuroinfectious disease specialists, and they've seen this before, you know, on a smaller scale with other viruses. And so they sort of knew that this was going to be coming. So they set up a clinic, and they have been getting 60 new patients a month from around the country. They're seeing some in person and some via telemedicine. This study is a report of a hundred of their patients, kind of their early patients, and it is looking at the symptoms that they had and how long they persisted and any underlying conditions that they had and all that sort of stuff. And so the most striking thing is that for this study, they picked people who were not physically sick from the initial infection of COVID. These are not people who were hospitalized. They basically had very mild illness. And yet what they find is months later, 85% of them were experiencing four or more symptoms, things like brain fog, headaches, tingling, muscle pain, dizziness, disturbed sense of smell and taste, all that kind of thing. And it paints a picture of just a very complex constellation of symptoms that affects a lot of people and can persist for, you know, as long as I think nine months in some of these patients. They still think that some of these neurological effects have to do with inflammation in the body, inflammation in the brain, and this leads to all of these other symptoms. And oftentimes they're experiencing multiple symptoms because there's an overlap when the, uh, the inflammation goes haywire. One scientist, I thought, put it very well, and she said, she told me that there's only, you know, a small amount of real estate in the brain. So what happens is you get a virus, your immune system kicks into gear, it fights the virus, and in some people, the immune system either doesn't shut off properly, seems to stay activated. In some people, they're sort of 
remnants of virus or remnants of the viral DNA hanging around. So you're not infectious or anything like that, but your immune system is still getting the signal to keep going. And then, you know, just the fact of your immune system activation creates a lot of inflammation in the body. It also can create inflammation in the brain. I mean, they're obviously connected. And the brain is this very complex organ that is not very large and most of the functions, it's not like you have like a tiny area for one thing and a tiny area for another thing. There's a whole lot of overlap. So depending on what part of the brain is inflamed, it could create more of a sort of cognitive issue like brain fog or memory loss, or it could be creating more of like a nerve issue where you get this sort of tingling and tremors and It could be affecting your muscles more than one of those other two, and it could also be causing some psychiatric issues. Tell me a little bit about some of the patients that you heard from. One that stood out in the article that I saw was Eddie Palacios. He's 50. Um, He's a commercial real estate broker. And for him, he had a a pretty mild case. I think he had like a low-grade fever, something very simple at the beginning. And then a few months later, the rest of it hit him, and He couldn't remember things. He went to do the test, the cognitive test, and he said he failed them, and he just really couldn't get it together anymore. So tell me a little bit about what you're hearing from them and and how they're trying to help them now, because they're trying to get them to do these tests and, 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 you know, help out like if anybody, any other neurological disorder kind of, they'd run them through these tests and help them get back that way. Eddie Palacios was a very good example of the kind of patient who is showing up at these clinics at this point. And I think it's important to sort of understand who the sort of early attendees are because they give you a picture of this is sort of the leading edge of what we can expect. So a lot of these people are people in very high-functioning jobs. They were healthy beforehand. They're not old. They're kind of in the prime of their lives. And many of these people, they have more of the wherewithal. A lot of them have private insurance. These are folks who are able to sort of find out about a special neurological COVID clinic. Eddie Palacios, he's a commercial real estate broker. He lives in a, in a, a nice suburb of Chicago. And like you said, he got, I don't even think he got a fever. I think he told me he just had a headache. And then a month later, he's up on his roof cleaning his gutters and he forgets what he's doing there. Then once he sort of figured out, oh, I'm on the roof, he sort of froze at the idea of trying to climb down the ladder to get off the roof. So, of course, that's, you know, very unsettling for somebody like this. And then he starts finding that his real estate clients, he has to remember things like a passcode to a property or an address where he needs to meet somebody, and he's not able to remember that. So he he had enough, you know, sort of he was doing things like putting post-it notes everywhere and all that sort of stuff. He was definitely thinking of everything he could possibly do. He went to the Northwestern Clinic. As you said, he told me he failed all the cognitive tests. And they referred him to a program, it's not affiliated, it's in Chicago, but it's a longstanding program that they call a cognitive rehab program. And this is a program that typically sees people who may have had brain injuries or concussion, and they're used to working with people who have brain-related deficits, and that's what they're seeing in these COVID patients. Pam Bellick, health and science writer at the New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.